0: Welcome, listeners, to the latest Arcade Attack podcast. On today's show, I've got the Bioshock creator himself, Ken Levine. In this interview, Ken discusses how he came up with the idea of Rapture, his inspirations for the game, and how he reflects on the Bioshock universe today. So, guys, sit back and enjoy a really great interview with a true retro gaming legend.
1: Welcome to Arcade Attack. <laughs>
0: A retro gaming
1: podcast for up to four players.
0: Anic boom. Big bad geek. Welcome back, listeners, to the Arcade That podcast. I've got an amazing guest on today's show, a real legend. As you if you listen to our previous episodes, you know we're a huge fan of Bioshock, and that's probably giving the game away. Um, it really is a true honor, Ken, Ken Levine, to have you on the show. Thank you for your time. Thanks for inviting me.
1: I've uh, I listened to some episodes, and really enjoyed it.
0: you legend. Thank you. Um, I'm going to start with quite an open question. I reckon it's quite a tough question, and then we can go a bit more specific about some of your games, if that's right, Ken. But sure. you are, you're obviously known and highly respected for your storytelling uh, in both video games and other media. Um, where do you personally find the inspiration, the influences that have helped you create such, you know, vivid stories and those amazing settings? Can you sort of run through your kind of sort of framework in your brain, for example?
1: Yeah, it comes from a lot of places, you know, in terms of the games, I was highly influenced by playing. Now, I've been a gamer since really before there were video games and I was used to, you know, playing electromechanical games in the arcade. Um, most people don't remember these things, but they were, Cool little coin op things that had, you know, purely mechanical elements, you know, basically glorified pinball, um, you know, and, and w- weird gun games that use like, uh, um, you know, like photosensitive things that you could, you know, target. Uh, there's, a, if you watch the movie Jaws, actually, there's a shark game in there, an arcade in the sequence, which is a game I used to enjoy that it was all done by just lighting up different stills, you know, putting a light behind different still drawings of a shark. Okay. And so I got started really early, and but the real game that influenced me to make the kind of games that I make now, I think was probably Ultima Underworld, which is an old Looking Glass game, which came out about 91, probably. And that was the first time, I think it was really the first sort of uh, immersive sim, you know, the first of its kind. And that just really blew me away. These kind of, the the openness and the world building and the environment setting and how you know, having come from playing games like Wizardry, where you sort of move a block at a time, or Ultima, which is sort of overhead view. This was a first-person game that was free form, you know, really a predecessor to what first-person shooters, in a lot of ways, became that they went in a different direction um, in terms of just having a free-flowing first-person environment. That was hugely inspirational. Then, of course, the first System Shock, um, which I didn't work on, but I was very inspired by that. And so by the time I got to make System Shock 2, you know, I was really ready to go. Um, But then outside of games, um, you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a film nerd, you know, so I, I, there's a, I, you know, especially films like the set films of the seventies and films of the nineties. I think there's this cycle where people grow up with films they're inspired by and they tend to, so there's like 20 year gap where you have this cyclical nature. Like, so, the seventies filmmakers came out of an era of sort of calcified filmmaking in the sixties and they needed those movies weren't selling anymore. So they, they handed a bunch of young bucks, the reins to make like, you know, ended up getting the Godfather and apocalypse now and taxi driver and, um, all those film great films of the seventies that were, you know, quite, you know, a lot of dark, a lot of yeah. heroes, and, and have a very sc- cynical cast on the war, view of the world. Um, but my big film was, um, was not sort of a strange film that was not super well remembered, but a film called Logan's Run was the first mm-hmm. real dystopia story, um, utopia slash dystopia story I ever saw. And that movie, I was such a obsessed with that story when I was a kid. That was my first exposure. But then when in high school, then a few years later, you know, I was exposed to George Orwell and Aldous Huxley and Brave New World in 1984 and Animal Farm. And um I continued my sort of real fascination with you know these sort of political social ideas that those things brought into science fiction. Um and I was really um I love the world building of those, you know, stories. They really had unlike uh some science fiction stories where there's like, oh, you know, Martians invade, like Starship Troopers, which I which you know is another film book I really liked. Um it was really about the world that these ideas created and Mm. quite the dark, the dark worlds they created. Um, And I was just fascinated by the kind of world building those books did. And I really wanted to take that kind of lens to storytelling. And I, it didn't really even occur to me until I got into games that I could do that. So I had written a bunch of early screenplays that none of them were really very anything like what I do now. There were Mm. sort of more action films and, you know, I wrote like a, Romantic comedy for Paramount, which is like nothing like I'm known for at all. And it wasn't very good, to be honest. But um those are the books that really inspired me. And um so I yeah, I think I was taken from those kind of novels and, and, and those kind of movies and those kind of games. They all sort of merged into becoming, you know, what System Shock and Bioshock were,
0: you know, were so cool. Did any of your screenplays make it to the big screen kid? No.
1: No. I've sold oh. about in my life, I think three or four. And none of them have actually made it to the big screen. Um, it's a very, it was just strange because, like, the first game, the first two games I worked on, t- that, you know, well, we had a bunch of ideas. You know, there's a, a, a documentary that Danny O'Dwyer did on Thief, and you can see sort of the amount of ideas that came up before it became Thief. But when we started Irrational, you know, System Shock 2 was our first game. And, you know, it was my, unlike the film industry, which has this thing called development hell where you could be, you know, as a screenwriter, could years and years and years go by and you write screenplay after screenplay. Really, the first game I worked on from start to finish got out there. Um, yes. And that was great. Um, and it's been a much more satisfying career for me too, because there's a much more direct line. And I've had a lot more agency in my career as a game maker than as a screenwriter.
0: Good stuff. Um, really appreciate the answer, Ken. Thank you. Um, let's talk about Thief. Was that the first game you properly worked on, the first published title? Was there any games before? Or how, Yeah. Uh,
1: yeah, well, I worked on a bunch of things at Looking Glass. Um, there was a Star Trek game, a Star Trek Voyager game that I worked on that got cancelled. Um, but I, I didn't work on it for that long. And then we had a bunch of... you know, the Thief was a bunch of different game ideas before it became Thief, and they were all... But they all shared a common element, which was this notion of it would be cool to be walking around a world and hear an AI, you know, talk in the world and say, "So, you know, is somebody there?" And that's not something that really existed in, in games before. Maybe Metal Gear had the initial sort of impulses of AI awareness ramping up. We sort of took that notion then of having AIs that the whole their whole awareness. Arcing up and down was this whole cycle you go through, and that was really good for stealth, right? Because you, mm-hmm. you were you were getting a lot more feedback. That element really remained through all those game ideas, and you know, um, Danny Dwyer's um, documentary on Thief covers a lot of this more in depth than I have time to go into now. But um, so people are interested, they should watch that. But yeah, it was there was a game called. Um, Better read than undead. There was a game called Dark Camelot. There was a game called, and, um, our dark elves must die. We had all these ideas that were really cool. And I, and it was cool, but I had to build a different world setting for each of them. So nice. I got real practice in building worlds, at least, you know, five, seven page pitch documents with a world and mechanics and all that. And, um, the guy I was working with, that was my mentor figure at the time was Doug Church at Looking Glass. And he just, you know, would, we talked about it for a while and then he'd end up saying, now this isn't going to work. And I'd have to learn very, very quickly to bounce back from rejection. And I think he was right in all those cases. Like, I think we came up with the thief was the best of those ideas. Um, um, you know, it was the most unified of all those ideas. And, um, but it was a very good lesson. I think it's an important lesson for young developers to learn is that just because you wrote something, or created something doesn't mean it's good you know, are good enough. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, And I can go back and, you know, and think about all those things that they were, they were good and they had their strengths, but we actually came up with something better. And it really gave me the most important lesson in games, which I think is, I think a lot of developers struggle with, which is you got to throw out your, your work, you know, as a writer, you know, there's a saying um, writing is rewriting. Um, mm-hmm. And it's a luxury in the games industry to be able to do that. And um, I have been fortunate enough to be able to have that luxury, and I think most of the reason that the work—if the work is good—that I do, it's because I've been able to say no, this isn't working, mm. and move on and throw it out. And that can come across as indecisiveness, and I, I can definitely see why people feel that way. But for me, it's why I don't know another way to get there. Um, because, but it also requires you to be willing to pick up that pen again and start over. Um, and yeah. I think it's critical. It's a, I, I view it as a luxury.
0: Man. I, I, wow. And I was going to ask if Thief kind of helped you in your future career and obviously you just answer that. So Ken, yeah, you obviously made a big influence. It? Yeah.
1: I don't think it helped me in my career from a like, Oh, you, you worked on Thief, so you're going to get this. I think system shock Two right. was it did that for me, yeah, but yeah. it helped me. It helped me understand that just because you think it's cool doesn't necessarily mean it's cool enough. Um, oh, yeah. and, um, and I still love, I still have some of those designs like dark camelot. I have some, I think there's I a have a design document for that somewhere, but we made the best. I think we looking last went on to make the, the right, you know, use the right, um, concept. Um, Bush is better than the
0: others. I was a fan of system shock as well, Ken, just like yourself. And, um, I remember playing it and thinking this is different to doom and Duke Nukem and d It just felt a bit more mature and a bit sort of darker. I mean, you said already you're a fan. Um, how did you get the opportunity to work on the sequel? Are you, are you happy to sort of fill in the time? between yeah. Thief and system shock too.
1: So no, so thief, I, so I left, look, while I was working on thief, um, I left, um, to form a rational because, yeah. um, I was concerned about the companies. I was terrified of, I viewed getting into games. I was 29. This was sort of my second, I had already sort of tried to be a screenwriter. It didn't really work out. So I had a few years in the wilderness and, you know, doing jobs that weren't creative and, and while I got by, you know, as a computer consultant and a graphic designer and a bunch of other random jobs. I was disappointed because I was this sort of wunderkind. I was winning all these you know, playwriting awards and I was young. And then I got an, an agent when I was like 19 or 20 and I was, you know, and then all of a sudden all that was gone. And, you know, I can sense my parents' disappointment in me, you know, and all that other stuff. And, um, so when I was worried, I got this job at looking glass, which I couldn't believe I was lucky enough to get, but then I started to get worried about looking glasses, um, sort of financial health, even though it was like, you know, from a creative standpoint, it was second to none. Um, you know, I had run a business myself and I know what ha- I know that businesses, I think a lot of times people at jobs think the business is just going to be there forever. And I hadn't, I knew enough to see some warning signs that the business was going to go struggling. Mm-hmm. And so and this is probably naivete, you know, I, and a couple other people from looking glass started irrational thinking we could keep the design aesthetic but maybe have a stronger, you know, maybe maybe have a more stable, try to build a more stable business platform at the same time, and you know that was pretty naive at the time because why would we, you know, having marginal experience, why would we be able to do that? And I think we got we got a bunch of lucky and unlucky breaks along the way, but here we are, you know, still, you know, yeah. even, ghost story is an evolution of rational, but you know, um, but you know, here I am still running the group, you know, twenty some odd years twenty almost twenty-five years later and um yeah. I mean, we were able to keep it going. But um yeah we left and we started Irrational. We started got our first gig, which got canceled after like three weeks. And then I was just like in this panic that I was I had blown my shot my second shot at creative career. Yeah. And fortunately we got called by Looking Glass who had a they wanted to do a second game on their thief engine. Cause they want to amortize the cost of that. And, um, they asked us if we had any ideas. So we pitched something that we called shock at the time, which was basically like system shock two, but they didn't have the rights to it. EA had the rights oh to God. it ah. and they pitched it. And so it was different. Like it didn't have Shodan in and it. it was kind of different. It was very much like an apocalypse now storyline. There was a, uh, military commander set in the future who had gone kind of crazy and you were an assassin basically hired to go go on this crazy spaceship and where he had completely gone over off the deep end and go to this really strange world and try to um and try to um take him down and then we pitched that we built a very crude prototype of that in the dark engine which wasn't this was in 1997 so thief had it was still gonna it was a year from coming out and thief's Engine Thief was one of those games, like many games, people don't really understand. They said basically there was no game until a couple of months before it came out. Like they finally mm-hmm. figured out the the technology wasn't working properly. It all sort of came together in the last couple of months. And you know, i and I say this from hearing from the people who worked on it. They may that's my understanding of what happens. I stopped working on it at that point. But it was you know it was it was heady days. You know there wasn't the kind of you know there's no Unreal Engine five. And there was no digital distribution. Like the industry was, it was, you, you're you building an engine back then. You're writing your own, you're building your own. Everybody's building their own engine. Everybody's writing their own sound drivers. You know, everybody's writing their own um, memory management and all that stuff from back in the DOS days. And um, you, it was, it was, everybody was sort of going by the skin of their teeth. And um, so we built this very crude prototype and this very sort of semi-functional engine but it was enough. It had a good atmosphere to it. And it was enough to get a deal, you know, so Paul who ran looking Glass, us was pitching it out to, um, EA and Microsoft and, um, like I I think, and, um, EA bit on it. Um, yes. and fortunately, because they bit, we got the rights to make it a system shot game. And once I knew I had showdown, oh, wow. I was not going to walk away from that because showdown to me was the best video game villain I'd ever seen by a long shot. Um, and so I was, I knew I was going to make the game and a new showdown, had to be the heart of it. That relationship with showdown and, um, and we were off to the races.
0: The stars aligned, didn't they? Yeah, to yeah, get yeah. Two? As I said, luck, you know, luck is, I
1: think hard work and talent are, are fine. They're necessary, mm. but you have to be luck. You have to, be there when the luck comes around. Right. So that's what it is. You you work really, 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 really hard. And so you may, if you're lucky, be there when that lucky break happens. And then, you know, we had to get the game and then we had to make it right. And then the game had to be good. And that was more of the talent of the team. Um, You know, and I think we all knew we had a very limited period of time and we knew it had to be good because if we blew it um, we didn't think there'd be any other big chances coming. Um, so we just did our best, and um, we were pretty shocked by the reception, frankly, because we, we were – you know, it was another game, too. It was very broken until very near the end, um, mm-hmm. and it, it, it even, even the second half of the game, I think, struggled in terms of we ran out of time, and the second half of the game isn't as good as the first half because we had to focus our energy somewhere.
0: It was critically uh, – yeah, hugely acclaimed. It was really well-respected, but it didn't sell I – I mean, I don't, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it didn't sell – that well. How, why do you think it wasn't really maybe as successful uh, as it was critically acclaimed?
1: It's hard to say. Um, I think most games, it's really a question of why games sell rather than mm-hmm. why games mm-hmm. don't sell because mm-hmm. most great things fail to find an audience mm-hmm. or most things fail to find an audience. Um, System Shock was it helped our careers greatly because a lot of the people who mattered played it like people at development, you know, at, you know, at executives at, at publishers and the journalists loved it. <coughs> you know, the game press loved it and certain fans loved it and people yeah. found it, loved it, tend to love it a lot. Like it wasn't like, Oh, I like this. It's okay. Mm-hmm. It's like, wow, I really, really like this. So it was a small group of people who are, who was very important too. And I think we're probably, better off than selling twice as much, but nobody really attaches to it. Mm. You know, sort of like avatar, right? Avatar is a movie that sold really well, but it doesn't really have a cultural impact, Great. you know, versus say, you know, the Terminator, right. Which, you know, Cameron also made, which had, or, or Titanic even, which had, you know, a big cultural impact. Um, and, um, so it had a big cultural impact on a very small group of people. And, but why well, didn't sell? I mean, I think it, it's really the other question is, well, why why does anything sell? Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, maybe it was, like, I remember showing it to my parents, and they, back then, you know, as a gamer, uh, did you play it? You're, you're much younger, so you probably, how old you were probably pretty young, or how old I, were you when that came out?
0: Yeah, I was a teenager then, so I, I played the, I haven't really played the second one much. I played the first system shock, truthfully, and I'm not going to lie to you, but, right. well, that's funny. yeah.
1: But but if you look at it as a gamer, you can sort of see what's happening, but the graphics are so crude mm-hmm. that if you're not a gamer, you're trying to look in, you're trying to suss out a story from it. Yeah. You know, it's hard to tell. So it didn't have that high intensity action gameplay. It was very story oriented. But for people interested in story, I think it took really to the Bioshock came around where the graphics were sophisticated enough where somebody who's not a hardcore gamer can look at it and be like, oh, I understand the world here. I understand yeah, the yeah, issue yeah. what the visual is trying to get across to me. Because my parents saw Bioshock and they could understand, oh, I see this, this city at the bottom of the ocean with Art Deco elements and it looks kind of like Rockefeller Center in New York. Because they, you know, they were the ones who had taken me there, you know, as a kid and inspired yeah. me, which with the look of the game comes from this particular set of, of four blocks in New York. Um, but I, I think, you know, it was hard to read to most people. So heavy story games at that point were a bit of a sell where a yeah. like Quake multiplayer game the iconic visually simplistic iconic nature of it re- makes much more sense in in a multiplayer oriented game like that
0: Were you a fan of those kind of dooms and juke freezies Were you more was it really not your cup of tea those kind of all action fps games or
1: Well I like the single player I'm not really a multiplayer gamer cuz mm. I I don't have a very good like I'm not actually my my secret shame is I'm really I play games all the time I'm not good at that. Like people are like, Oh, I finished that game in like 12 hours. I'm like, Oh, it took me like 35 hours to finish it. <laughs> and so I play games all the time. I play games every day. Um, and like, I'm, you know, like I always have to say that right now I always have a game in the background. So he's running like, so Slay the Spire is always running in the background for me or ins- or inscription. He's so like, and I talk to people who finish it and like, you know, inscription, I'm like, you know, get to the end in like eight hours. And I'm like, I've been playing for like 25 hours and I haven't gotten to the end. Um, yeah. So I'm, I don't like playing multiplayer games just because I'm not very good at them. But I also like immersion in games. So I'd rather, for my personal taste, I'd rather play something that's, you know, more sto- either more story-oriented or more vibe-oriented um, or just more systemically oriented yeah. where I can really be doing those mid-maxing decisions. Um, so, no, I don't play a lot of multiplayer games. So I love the single-player Doom, and I love the single-player um, Duke Nukem, especially the world-building in Duke Nukem. That was mm. ahead of its time.
0: Yeah, I, I I used to do that as a kid. <laughs> make the levels it was so cool. Um, System Shock Three. I'd love to know if you started to work on that game, and did that evolve into Bioshock, or is there any? Is that the kind of transition? No,
1: it didn't evolve. I, I had ideas for System Shock Three, um, which I started working on after uh, System Shock Two shipped, which involved uh, Showdown having a child of sorts, and. I can't remember the details, but it was something about did that child become like Shodan or does it become something more benevolent than Shodan? I think. And I think my reference point for that is I tend to have a reference point for games I work on. Like, you know, Bioshock is sort of a Robinson Caruso story, right? It's a castaway at sea. And you end up on a strange desert island. Um and um this was, I think, sort of a, like a, like a Moses story, like, um, uh-huh. you're the son of the Pharaoh, you know, and, you know, a showdown and, you know, so you have the, and when you become more like, you know, your brother, like, you know, in, in, in the Moses story, the son of the, um, you, had, you know, the, uh, you had a brother, Moses had a brother who, you know, was a real son of the Pharaoh Moses adopted, um, or do you become, you know, you break away. And I, it was sort of based on that, but I, I wish I could remember more of the details, but I, but I can't. And it, it just never went anywhere. And now and Bioshock was a completely different beast.
0: Oh, fair enough. No, thank you. Um, Ken, you kind of mentioned it earlier. You said that you went with your parents. Um, uh, but how exactly did you first sort of envision Bioshock? Was it like a eureka moment or was it things that sort of put – I'd love to get your early ideas how this sort of game and setting came to came to life.
1: The, the big two eureka moments were – um very separate from each other and um, both sort of conceptually and, and time-wise. So the first idea I had for Bioshock, the team wanted to do a, 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 another System Shock 2 style game, but I was very reluctant because I was the guy who had to go out and make the deals. And I knew the appetite for it because the first game didn't sell very well. It wasn't very good. So I was oriented towards keeping the company alive, which was at that time very difficult to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you had to make deals with publishers. and There had to be enough money in those deals. And if you, were late or something you can end up in really hot water and the company was always on the brink of going under, you know always on the brink of extinction mm-hmm. and it was my job to make that not go extinct so <laughs> i pushed against it and the team you know to their uh, credit kept pushing for it because i think a lot of people came to the company because they loved system shock too and they wanted to make something like that so i didn't really have an idea for it. so one night i was watching a nature show And it was, you know, I can't remember what the animals were, but it was some mother animal and a baby animal. And there was a predator out there and the mother was fighting off the predator. And I remember watching it and being like, oh, there's, you can watch this. Well, obviously there's no words, right? Because there were three animals. I can't remember which animals they were. But you knew exactly what was happening, right? You understood that relation. There's a predator, there's a protector, and there's a child. And I said, we could, these would make really interesting AI types. Because there's a story being told here yeah. that is immediately gettable with and no words are necessary. And I really like visual storytelling, mm. you know, coming from a screenwriting background. And I sort of went in, I had that idea, and we started kicking those ideas around. And eventually that's the thing over a long period of time became the big daddy and little sister um, and, the, and, and, the, and the Spicers. But from, a, from what the world was, we had an idea for City at the Bottom of the Ocean just because... You know, like a spaceship, you can't get out of it. You know, you can't leave it. So we like these sort of worlds that can evolve in, in you know, in a Petri dish. Um, and so we had this idea about a bottom of the ocean and it went through a bunch of concepts. But then I was in New York with my wife at Rockefeller Center. We were really trying to find a striking visual. And Rockefeller Center, for those of you who haven't been there, is sort of a four square block area like this plaza in New York. That's all designed by a single, either by a single architect or exactly in the same architectural style, which is Art Deco. Um, you know, it's where you have the big skating rink and the Christmas trees lit there. But if you go there, it's this extraordinary mini world because New York, like London, is a combination of artistic styles, right? Um, or most cities are a combination. It's a bit of a hodgepodge over time, where just different buildings come up and whatever the time period it is. But Rockefeller Center is a unified world and it's very rare and it's on a scale that's what you very rarely see in a city. Um, and so I got really excited and I thought, well, not only was it cool, look beautiful, but the shapes are rather simple. Our deco is made up of rather simple geometric shapes. And so from the rendering standpoint, I knew we could do it. Um, because games are, especially then, even so now they're still a fairly low resolution medium compared to real life in movies. Cause you you know the kind of, Close ups you can do and the kind of detail you can focus on in a, in a movie you can't really get to in a game. Um, unless you yeah. use sort of, you know, very specific techniques, like in first person games, your character picking up something and putting it right in front of your eyes. So in first person games, you're always at a fair distance from things usually because you, um, you know, unless you really put it up to, at the camera. Um, and so I like that. It was striking. It felt like it, there's also a statue of Atlas holding up the globe outside, which is they actually put on a cover of one of the editions of the Fountainhead, of Ayn Rand's the Fountainhead, which is the book that sort of inspired the you know the, the Andrew Ryan character and and the philosophy for the city. And all those things sort of went off like ding, 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 ding in my head. And um, I came back and my wife and I bought um, these disposable cameras they had back then because we didn't have their cell phones didn't have cameras really, man, or good ones. And we just like felt, you know, used up all the film in those cameras, taking pictures of everything you know, down from, you know, the, the the facade of the building down to like what a door handle or what or what a lighting fixture would look like to a floor tile to a, you know, a, a um to, you know, a desk to everything. And we brought it back to the team like, okay, I'm like, I think this is it. And the, art team, you know, took it up immediately and were great. And they started figuring out how to um, turn it into something. And we focused on the space that became the restaurant that you have well, you know, very early in the game, you come into this restaurant, called the cashmere restaurant um, right past where you, the woman in the baby with the baby carriage, the spice for the baby carriage, you go into this room yeah. and that we just started working on that room. And we stayed in that room for like a period of a couple of months of just trying to get it right. Um, and we, and we kept you know throwing things out, going, going and focusing. And once we had that room, right. Then we started expanding out and populating the rest of the game with that look. Mm. Um, but it was, it was like one of those, you know, Eureka moments that came from just being in the world um, and, and seeing that space. And I had in that space, you know, a hundred times before in my life, but I never really, I always liked it. I always had an attachment to it, but I never really, you know, thought of using it in, in a meaningful way in a game.
0: When sure. you go back, is it weird when you go back since the game or is it just?
1: <laughs> it's not weird because I've been there so many times before, yeah. but I do have a spec, probably a stronger attachment to that space now because, you know, it was very, It was like a gift from a gift from the heavens to be given an aesthetic that clear um and you know you have to honor obviously all the artists who came forward and developed that style and the artists who made that space but you know i hope they wherever they are they know that um audiences today not only people go to the space but gamers who never have a chance to go to that space are still being inspired by their work
0: amazing i'm sure they would really appreciate that Um, I mean, you mentioned earlier about, you know, you, you got into George Orwell and um, history was part of Bioshock. Um, I'd love to know, is there any other media that is uh, that helped make Bioshock? So I've heard that Resident Evil games was a bit of an inspiration. Is that fair? Is there any other video games you got ideas from? or
1: Resident Evil, the first one, I remember had a really good strange vibe. I don't think it was inspirational in the sense that more on System Shock where, you know, sort of the... Um, you know, the sort of limited resources aspect of resident evil can create a lot of tension. And I realized that playing resident evil, that it would, you know, you'd find a couple of bullets every now and then you have to really think carefully about each one you use, but not, not as much, um, in terms of the big picture elements, much more coming from, you know, the looking last games and doing system shock and wanting to build from there. um, so, yeah, I, I, th- I think it's, it, it had more inspiration on System Shock, too,
0: ah. than it did in Bioshock. Ah, fair enough. Um, I mean, Rapture is famous. It's one of the most iconic locations in a video game. And I, I have to say, I was blown over when, when I first went into Rapture. Um, you, can you describe how you wanted Bioshock to make the player feel when they and, and the emotions you wanted to evoke when they were playing, when they first walked into Rapture and got really into the story, for example?
1: Well, I think this is from my own life as a kid. I grew up near New York not in New York, but near I was born in New York and I grew up in Northern New Jersey, which is not very far from New York. So my dad worked in New York and I spent a lot of time there. My grandmother lived in Queens uh, and had a lot of family members there. And there was sort of this, my dad worked in the diamond district um, 47th street. And there was this very sort of at that time when I was kids, I was born in 1966. There was a lot of, you know, the immigrant Jewish immigrant culture, you know, uh, the old world, you know, my grandparent, my grandmother's native language was Yiddish, you know, um, not English. And so the, there's a lot of Yiddish being spoken, a lot of that sort of, um, diaspora feeling, you know, Jewish diaspora, European diaspora feeling in Eastern Europe kind of feeling that I remember going to delis and, and, um, bakeries and, um, and this sort of sights and sounds and the feel of that world, of, you know, I, I used to go to Broadway shows a lot. My, my, my parents take me in that a lot of, you know, sort of Broadway is built by a lot of European refugees. Um, and so I kind of, and then also the experience of going to New York in the seventies when, in the early eighties, when the streets, you know, they sort of emptied the mental institutions cause they stopped funding them. And you had a lot of very, um, mentally, people have a lot of mental health issues on the streets. They just kind of abandoned them to the streets and remember as a child, that's sort of not understanding, you know, so when you're a kid, you just see those, you know, people who are experiencing these traumas, mm-hmm. you just see it as scary when you're a kid, mm-hmm. right? Cause you don't understand. Um, and so there's the Spicer server, sort of my child, you know, me channeling my childhood fears and, and reactions to people, but then as an adult, I want to give the Spicers that very human background, you know, because they, they all, they're tragic stories, right? They're not monsters. There are these tragic stories in them. And so when you find their audio logs and when you hear them talking about, you know, they're talking to p- people who aren't there, you know, as an adult, yes. as I got older, I realized that was tragedy, not horror. And um, so I think the tragic feeling of the, of lost, you know, and the, all those people kind of felt like, uh, you know, they, there's some kind of lost greatness to them, right? Because their mental health issues overtook whatever life they had. And so they were having, so having experience of in their head, they were sort of on the streets, you know, people, especially people, I think with schizophrenia, for instance, they were um, seeing and hearing things that weren't always necessarily there and having conversations with people who weren't necessarily there. And they were sort of trapped in this past. Um, And I try to, so that all these things, my childhood experiences in New York all sort of merged and became yeah. this experience of rapture and so it is kind of a child's view of New York in the 70s and the early 80s uh, but obviously we transported it back in time a little bit because the people i knew but it, but the people in you know the city were about the same age as the people who were um, you know Andrew Ryan was born about the same time I gra- my grandfather was about the you know, turn of the century um, And, you know, he was 60ish in 19, you know, in the the time period of the game. Um, and, um, the characters were sort of in that age. I was really writing about my grandparents' generation, um, and who had fled Europe for various reasons, either, you know, the, whether it's the Russian Revolution or, or the Holocaust or just in search of greater, you know, opportunities. Um, and so it was sort of a love letter to, to them and a reconstruction of my feelings as a kid of of experiencing New York and all those people and not quite understanding their experiences, but that sense of wonder and and fear and all those other elements that combine when you're a kid exposed to all that stuff.
0: Wow, that's incredible. Thank you for sharing that. Um, Ken, I've actually asked you this question before. you very kindly answered a couple of questions on a sort of live Twitter, but I just know our listeners would love to hear this. But if you had the opportunity to – to ever visit Rapture in real life, let's imagine it actually existed. Would you, would you take up that invitation?
1: Yeah. I remember you asked me, I, yeah, we <laughs> met on a, on a, on a Twitter spaces thing. Right. Mm. Um, and um, yeah, I like to visit it briefly. Um, it's, you know, I think moving there would be a tricky proposition. It's pretty dangerous. Um, probably yeah. <laughs> doesn't smell great. Uh, that's the thing, you know, probably it's good. We couldn't get across in the game um, because everything, you know, you ever been in a waterlogged space for a long period of time, it tends to not end up not smelling excellent. Um, but certainly it would be amazing to spend a little time there. But I kind of feel I have been there, you know, yeah. um, and I'm OK with that, with that knowledge. It feels like a real place to, to me.
0: Brilliant, and it, yeah, I mean, it's absolutely incredible setting. Um, obviously, we haven't really spoken about it. Bioshock. Is obviously known for about the RPG elements. You can improve yourself. You can improve your weapons. You can, uh, you can sort of change yourself with plasmids and Adam and stuff and so forth. I mean, how did you, was that a really important part of the game you wanted to bring in? And was there any ideas that you that just didn't make it into the final cut of the game, for example?
1: Yeah, I mean, it. I thought it was a differentiating factor like system shock two has had the sort of, you know, sonic powers thing in it, but it was never really, it was good and interesting, but it wasn't, it didn't work in the combinatorial way, you know, that we were able to do with the left, with the, with the plasmids. Um, and also we didn't really have the environmental effects. Yeah. Um, the environmental effects were actually something I really was pushing for back. Even in the looking glass days, I, I wrote up, a. I just, I used to, when I got there, I would just sit there and write documents. Like, I write like white papers and proposals for systems. I would just keep writing stuff. And so one thing I wrote came up with, well, came up with. I mean, I conceptually came up with it. I had no ability to conceive it, or to prototype it or anything because I'm not a programmer, but it was a system called, a system called Act React. And that was basically like, could you give things properties? And it was inspired by like in, in Ultima Underworld, you could take up like a fish and put it on the fire and eventually become a cooked fish. Nice. And that, I love that moment. Like, and that was 1991 but I really want to expand upon that where things have sort of gettable knowable properties like fire would melt ice, you know, I, you know, um, fire would burn things or melt ice or ice could put out fire, you know, and all these other things that you could apply to objects in the game and the player would be able to then start experimenting with those, understanding the basic principles of, you know, very primal principles like, you know, fire and ice, etc. cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you keep building on these systems and once they all know how to act with each other or react to each other, hence act react. Um, you could have the player have a more experimental approach to gameplay. So with plasmids at first we were working on it and they were much more sort of like more traditional RPG like system shock 2, like this causes fire damage and this character has 22% vulnerability to fire damage. And it was very under the hood, but then we sort of really started pushing it more in this act react direction um, where um the game would sort of um, say yes to the player. Like if the player expected to be able to do something, the the, the player would be able would be able to um, to do it
0: yeah, as much yeah, yeah. as he
1: could. And so it, it moved away from sort of RPG fireball to this kind of damage onto like okay, these the world just sort of behaves the way you'd expect it to. Then we come up with ideas like when an AI was on fire, he jump in the water, um, you know, and ice doors and all those other things. Um, electrical stuff projecting through the water, um, and we just kept expanding that library, the vocabulary. And I think it was probably the most innovative from a game well, besides the Big Daddy. It was probably the most innovative part of that game. And not that nobody ever done those powers before, but we figured out a way to make it feel just a little more grounded.
0: Mm, I'd agree. Um, I want to quickly talk about the big twist in the game. The big story was that always. Did you come out of that when you're early days or because it, it, I wasn't expecting it, I'll be honest.
1: There's no such thing as always in a game. Right. Because, as I said, like you get one idea about it from a nature show. And, you know, yeah, like true. it's not like all of a sudden rapture and everything, you know, <laughs> the part the clouds parted. Um, the twist. I don't remember exactly. I know we did it. Fairly, we came up with the idea of before we had written a lot of the script because because that scene was extremely complex at the time. That was a big cut scene for us at the time, the the Andrew Ryan reveal scene. And we hadn't done anything on that scale before. Um, And we had a plan ahead of time. So we actually, I had to write it very early. I didn't even know exactly how it would work in the story. I just had this, like, I just wrote it. And it stayed pretty much exactly the same after I wrote it, you know, the the Would You Kindly scene, I think as people call it now. Um and remember Sean Robertson and I, um, uh, who was the animation director at that point. Now he's uh he's our he's our art director. Um I think he was the animation director at I the time mean, his title changed a couple of times. But he we actually had an actor who wasn't um Armin Shimmerman come in because we hadn't even cast Armin yet and sort of um, I think we hadn't cast Armin yet and, and he, or maybe we did. And he, he, he acted to the vocal performance and, um, he sort of did a, like not a motion capture for so that technology didn't, well, it existed. We just didn't have access to it. We had some motion capture resistance shock to a very crude motion capture. Um, he sort of acted it out and then we used that as a basis to build the animations off of. And, um, but that had to be done really early. So I didn't know how I was going to get there at the time. So I had to sort of solve how to get there because I was, we were committed to that scene. Um, Mm -hmm. and I think, you know, as much as I said, you know, before it's really good to be able to throw away work, sometimes we don't, you can't throw away work. You're forced to, you know, to make it work. And I think that was a case where I had to sort of make it work and we had to then figure out how to get to that point. And um, it took a while, but we—I think we—we we eventually paved a path to it.
0: I bet you. Um, I bet you've heard lots of stories about how that tricked people; they weren't expecting. I bet you've heard everyone, or well, many people, many fans, and um, mentioned how much because I, I, it shocked me. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> it was so great.
1: Um, yeah, we—you well, we, know—we have done like. Y- 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 it's important when you do those scenes, I think, to not just have it be a shock to the character. It has to be a shock to the player for them to really, and it has to basically not just challenge the character's understanding of the world, but the player's understanding of the world. And so the fact that, you know, it was, and I don't know. I mean, I never, I never played it like anybody else. Like I'm the last person to ask to some degree, because it was never a surprise to me um, except maybe the moment, you know, when I thought of it, uh, you know, of the idea that it, and that's the only moment you get as a writer is, and sometimes those ideas just, you know, either you, you work them out or, and I can't remember how exactly how it came about, but I, I had seen the Manchurian candidate, um, and fight club were very inspirational movies for me. And the notion of really, when you watch fight club and I'll speak about fight club, there's probably more of your audience familiar with that. The Manchurian can and the Manchurian yeah, uh, fight club, yeah, great film. Um, when you learn the twist in that, it makes you reconsider your entire experience with the movie. And when you go back and watch it again, you realize that you're understanding the, the man the person you were when you watched it the first time is not the same person you are the second time you you watch it. And that's an amazing trick to pull on an audience. And with Bioshock, um we really wanted to Have the player have to reconsider their entire experience. And also I think, you know, for bonus points, we try to get to the, can they really examine their relationship to video games on top of that? Mm -hmm. And I think that we were kind of shocked. I think my two biggest shocks in my life were, were system shock getting as well received as it was because we had never, you know, shipped anything before. And, um, and then Bioshock that twist working as well. And then people getting it, because it's pretty we it's pretty strange and esoteric this and the people understood it was also about video games not just about the story of rapture um i think we were lucky but also i think we put our faith in gamers and that they were that they were more sophisticated than a lot of you know people might think they were yeah um, yeah, yeah. And so that they could they could go with this and understand that it existed not just in a story sense, but it's sort of in a meta commentary sense and um, and would reward them for their knowledge and understanding of games and the experience of being of having played a lot of games.
0: Unbelievable. I mean, that's a great answer. Um, I want to talk about Bio, Bioshock Infinite, if you don't mind, Ken, but uh, you, you didn't. Did you work much on Bioshock 2? I don't want you to think too long about this, but is it true? that Not, you, at, you,
1: not at all. Yeah, I I didn't even see it before it came out, so um, I didn't have any involvement with it.
0: So I guess Bioshock Infinite for you was the 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 game after, in your personal opinion. I mean, what was was that like working on? Was that like a whole different setting? Was it completely different? You know, sort of ambition for you?
1: I think my ambition at that time was to make something on a scale that I hadn't done before. Um, uh, you know, real kind of blockbuster storytelling thing, you know, to make a game that I could put out there with the big boys like Call of Duty and things like that. And I'm not sure that was the best idea from a development standpoint because I'm not sure that was my skill set, right? You know, um, so I think there are things in it that I really love. Um, and it's very beautiful and it's, I love the world building. Um, but there was a challenge, like for instance, just the notion that the world was still going and alive and we didn't really have the budget or time to do like a real living world, like an assassin's creed style world, you know? And also I think we ended up doing sort of a half measure to get to that. And we had a lot of characters, but they were sort of more like animatronics, um, in the world. And originally the game wasn't like that. Originally the game was much more like Bioshock where the world, you're coming into a world that had gone through some catastrophe and the end of the game is more like that. Um, And I think we sort of bit off a lot, but I think the thing that did work really well is Elizabeth. Um, And I was very happy with that uh, to create a character, companion character that you really invested in. Mm -hmm. And I think the themes, you know, the sort of where the themes ended up about the the lighthouses and the whole loop with Bioshock, I was very happy with, Mm -hmm. but I think from the gameplay standpoint and from a world building standpoint, I think, I set out maybe not necessarily with the greatest amount of wisdom um, in terms of what my goals were at the time, but I was very happy with parts of it.
0: Thank you. And um, I don't want to bring up, you know, bad um, memories, but you said, you've said in previous interviews that you, you found out, you, you found Bioshore Infinite that might impact your health a little bit in a negative way. Are you, I mean, how do you reflect back on that time? Do you, do you, would you have would you have done things a lot differently or do you think it's almost part of, you know part of your career or
1: i think that i'm glad i i did it i think i think that it was running a team of that size Mm. or being responsible for a project of that size with that many people on it some people are cut out for that you know like rod ferguson came in you know sort of late in the day to really help get the product across the finish line and that's rod's really 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 good at that i think he can manage a team of any size um, there was a lot of challenges to managing the team that size when you don't know everybody on the team, like, that's really strange. I don't have that anymore. You know, like I, I have a much smaller team and we do a lot more outsourcing. Um, and I know everybody and that's really, really, really yeah. helpful. And so there were things on the project going on that I just had no idea. And it, so I, I don't think I would. I think I reacted to it by, you know, by saying maybe I shouldn't do that again because I also having a ship that big and having a fixed ship date was very, 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 very challenging. And at some point, yeah, you know, we just couldn't move that date anymore, and it wasn't good for anybody. It Certainly wasn't good for me too. Um, wasn't good for anybody. But I and I took me a few years to recover from my right. experience. Yeah, but I'm I'm, uh, I'm doing much better now.
0: Well, I don't mean to bring up, you know, bad memories, apologies. Okay. In that sense. Um obviously Bioshock four, which we think be called Bioshock Isolation, is gonna come out relatively soon. Are you have you got any opinions about that? The the, the sort of pictures you've seen so far? Do you know any information, in the direction, are you, are you happy the game's being made, for example?
1: Uh, I know it's you know, I'm I'm same as Bioshock Two. I'm I'm
0: I'm not involved with it at
1: all. So I try to I don't wanna be I don't wanna do half measures. Like I never wanna be half in you know yeah, half yeah. out so um i wish them the best you know and and um they're you know i know they're, I i know i know as much about the game as anybody else essentially um and i'll play it as a player when it comes out um but right now i've, I've been i've not been involved with it at all so i don't really know anything about it
0: uh, fair enough um obviously right at the side interview you spoke about your screenplay career and there was a big bioshot movie that was in production, I believe, or at least pre-production. Uh, I'd love to know, because obviously it hasn't been made. I don't know if it will be made. But were you involved in that? Were you writing the screenplay for that film? And would you be happy to share a few more details about how far that movie went along?
1: Um, that was another situation where I would have liked to have been more involved with it, but I was sort of not really brought in, into it. I had some conversations Gore, but I, I never saw the script. All that art that came out, I never, they never showed it to me. I think there's a reason why the why my studios might do that if they don't want the uh, feedback from the team because sometimes the goals of the um the goals of the filmmakers are not the same of the people who built the franchise. Yeah. And I don't, I'm not saying that's a good thing, right? Like I think that when there is good when there is strong interaction, you know, like you know the first few seasons of Game of Thrones are very close to the books mm-hmm. and you know they made very smart choices um and I think that you want something that really feels like it embraces and honors the thing, though it doesn't necessarily have to be a slavish, you know, especially in a video game, you really can't do a slavish beat by beat. Cause a lot of times you just be running around shooting things. Um, but I think there was a story they wanted to tell, which wasn't necessarily the story of Bioshock. Uh, and sometimes, especially now, because you need a big IP to get the money to make something. Because right now, if you look at the way Hollywood movies are made, almost mm. everything, most things come from some reference material because mm. Hollywood doesn't really trust itself to conceive things anymore. So if you have a book or a comic or a game, that's much easier to get something made. So I think we were, you know, it was more a function of they wanted, mm. I think you we were like the visuals of the world, but they, ne- they weren't necessarily bought into like the story and the characters as they were. Um, and so what I had heard about it, I felt wasn't necessarily going in the right direction. And so right, at some point right. it was sort of up to me of do they continue, you know, were they going to ah. continue on with it? And, you know, I was very fortunate that the, comp- the company was like, you're willing to give me that authority. And I felt they were going to make a movie that may have been a good movie. Uh, I no know way of knowing that, but it wouldn't have been Bioshock. And so we, we stopped it.
0: Wow. Well, fair play. I mean, I guess we we'll are never know. You don't, you don't think it's ever going to be made now. I assume do you think that's kind of,
1: I don't know. Like I think I hope if it ever gets made it's you know I don't want to see it made unless it's
0: perfect, yeah.
1: Unless it's good and and whether you know and whether it's going to make the people who played the game feel like that it was t- that the things they loved in it are are intact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. He and, and then somebody's not just like, I had a meeting once with a filmmaker, a very well-known filmmaker, won't say his name. And he's a very talented, very talented filmmaker. And all these people we interact with are very talented and they all want to make a good movie, I'm sure. Right. You know, but did they want to make Bioshock is another question. And he said, first question he asked me, he goes, you know, Ken, I really love this, but does it have to be underwater? And that was, you know, and he, he's not a guy, he's not a guy who ended up working on any of the versions of the film, but yeah. that's kind of the question you get because, directors are looking for an ip they can attach to, so they can get the funding and it's not they don't necessarily and look at also the people who are now making big films a lot of them are older and they don't play games right so it's usually my you know my son likes this or you know i watch somebody playing it you know but they don't they don't have that experience like the would you kindly moment is a moment for gamers right it's a moment that you can't experience unless you play it as a game. You you can't, nobody can, you can't watch that and experience that moment. You have to have them playing it. And so how do you convey that in a film? Well, that's really tricky question, but to understand the feeling you're trying to convey, you have to have played that as a gamer. So I think it's a generational thing as well. I'm kind of old for a gamer, you know, like I'm 55. And when I started, there wasn't a lot of gamers. It wasn't really until the nineties or, or or the two thousands where gaming became such a broad thing. It's still pretty nichey. When I made System Shock 2 was an extremely niche field. Um, and really the rise of the consoles is what sort of made it broader than Steam coming back. But yeah. um, I, I I think that it's challenging to get made. And take two and I, I think both feel that uh, you know, that if it's gonna get made, it has to be made in a way that is not gonna be alienating to the people who love this thing.
0: Right, yeah. Well, you yeah, know completely agree. Um, I'm not going to ask you about what you're working on, um, but you've started Ghost Story Games. And how's, you know? What, can I ask why you started that company really briefly and how are you feeling about it? Was it the right dec- – I'm sure it's the right decision, but I'd just like to get your sort of mindset on the idea.
1: Yeah, I think we want to start by, you know, um, I did a talk on sort of an approach to game development people can find online called Narrative Legos. I did a talk in GDC mm. 2014. Um, we are trying to approach development differently in a million different ways um, coming off the experience of Infinite. Um, and that goes from like studio culture to ex- literally how the game is built and how it's structured. Um, I can't really go into any kind of detail. We haven't really talked about the game, and I'm not really looking to talk about it until we have something that we mm-hmm. want to share with people, like the game itself. Mm-hmm. But um, I think people will be be surprised but unsurprised by what they see
0: um in in,
1: in equal measures (laughs) um but it it is yeah it's um it's something quite quite interesting and i'm looking forward to showing it to people we didn't want to go down the path of showing it that's another thing i think on infinite is we showed the game too early because we thought it was going to be out sooner and um I don't want to have a long period of having to build up interest and hype because it just doesn't. It ended up feeling fairly inauthentic, and I think mm. that gamers want
0: to be, um,
1: they want to know what they're getting. Yeah. And yeah. the only way to do that really is to announce closer to launch.
0: Yeah, um, understood.
1: And so I think we haven't made that mistake. It's been hard. Just you know, I get, you know, that scene in The Big Lebowski. Like, you know, you know, where's the money, Lebowski? You know, getting your head shoved in the toilet. It kind yeah. of feels like that sometimes on Twitter, like, you know, and it's, I don't get offended by it. Cause it's just people loving what we do.
0: Yeah. And like,
1: you know, like I'll say, I'll make some con about something else. And be like, where's the fucking game. Living? <laughs> and I don't, I'm not hurt by that or offended by that at all. Cause I get it. Like I know when I have, I'm waiting for my favorite artist or whatever to come out with a new album or, or a movie. Yeah. I want it, but we, you know, we just don't want to go out there and show something that won't end up being completely representative of the final game. As much as we can. Um, and so it's been hard because we haven't been able to share any news with our fans for a very long time. And I think a lot of people are like, what are they doing there? Are they just sitting around doing nothing? And <laughs> I understand that. But it is a, we are checking on a very challenging product. But I can promise you it's being worked on every single day. Um, and we're very excited about it. I
0: can't wait um i've got two final questions and i've you know it's been such a great interview ken so i do really appreciate it and actually i think the next question's really tough i've asked this to many of our guests before and they do struggle do you have a top personal free video games of all time that that you've played growing up or even now what would you list in your top three
1: and they're weird because they they don't tend to be like i tend to be over narrative games but i don't tend to play as many narrative games as so i like I tend to like 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 Civilization, and XCOM. I sort of put it as two sides of a coin of very system oriented, open ended strategy games that have a lot of different. You know, every game is different. Yeah. Um, XCOM, especially, sort of combining the tactical and strategic, and very rare case where there's a game re re re, re reconceived and it's just as good as the original. You know what Jake Solomon did with um, with um, Julian Gallup's original design, and they're both you know. Amazing games. Um, uh, Ultima Underworld probably had a huge impact on me and System Shock, which I'll System Shock one I'll put in the same sort of, you know same side of the coin as well. And um, I don't know. Uh, maybe the original Castle Wolfenstein, that's before the it game. There's a game in the eighties and seventies called Castle, maybe the early 80s called Castle Wolfenstein on the Apple II which is really one of the early stealth games and very terrifying and nerve wracking to play Um, and and very crude by today's standards, but way ahead of its time at the time. Um, I think those games were pretty all pretty inspirational to me, but there's so many like recently a game I love, um, like the whole roguelike game series of games, whether that's um, Slay the spire or inscription is a new game I've been playing a lot, which I love or Inside, I think, is one of the most amazing pieces of storytelling I've ever played in a game. and It doesn't have a single word in it. Um, I don't know if you played it.
0: It's no, amazing. no. I'll check it out. It's by the guys who did Limbo. Oh,
1: um, nice. There's so much great stuff going on in the indie space right now. So I tend to play a lot of like indie games. Um, Into the Breach, uh, Say the Spire, Dead Cells, um, Hades. Um, tons of great... Um, Tons of great indie games in that space right now. So I've really been enjoying that whole genre, subgenre.
0: Bless you. Good good on you. And again, quite a tough question to finish off, Ken. Before I do that, thank you so much for your time again. Um, If you could share a drink with any video game character, who would you choose and why? If you could have a a good chat with someone.
1: Oh, I think it would have to be Elizabeth. Because, you know, she's like my head. She's like the daughter I never had right um i'd love to meet her and get to know her better and uh hopefully you know if i met elizabeth she'd have a better life story than the elizabeth (laughs) i created i was not a great dad to her um (laughs) but she's a wonderful person and sort of you know uh embodies a lot of the ideals i wish i had um as as, as a character so yeah i think it'd be elizabeth oh
0: what, what a great answer um Really good luck with your projects, Ken, and really thank you for your time. It is a real honour and a privilege for us to get you on the show. And, um, yeah, you know, hopefully you have huge more success in the future. I'm sure you will. But, yeah, thank you.
1: Thank you. It was a great question. I really, really appreciate it and enjoy your podcast.
0: Oh, you're a gentleman. Thank you, Ken. Thanks.
1: Thanks for listening to today's podcast. We really hope you enjoyed it. You can tweet us at Arcade Attack UK we're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash arcadeattackuk. Check out our website at arcadeattack.co.uk for lots more retro gaming goodness and to delve into our archives. Our podcasts are also available on Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, YouTube and Apple Podcasts. Please leave us a review and a rating, we'd really appreciate it. If you'd like to support Arcade Attack, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Attack, which will give you access to exclusive podcasts, interviews, and other bonus content. So, until next time, take care, and we'll speak to you soon.